0: I think we've all been childish in our lives. I'm sure you've all been childish in your lives. Hopefully it was mainly in your youth. You know, when we were children, when you were a child, hence childish. I've come to the conclusion that every human thought, emotion, and action is universal, not only to all time, but to all people. I'd like to share this with you, but I can't remember what it was. All I remember is reading an article about a really primitive people today who are doing the exact same things in their society that we do. There was no difference. Uh, They might be living in conditions that were primitive. They might not have had our technology. But the way that they were interacting was exactly as we here in California react to each other. <laughs> I wish I could share with you what it was, but I didn't even make a note of it, so what can I say? Solomon knew that 28 to 100 years ago when he said that there is nothing <coughs> new under the sun. Now Solomon was not referring to mission per se, or acting like a child, but 800, longer than that on, a thousand years further on, the Apostle Paul did just that. I guess it was 800. In uh, 1 Corinthians 13.11, he said, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, one of my questions is, do we ever really give up childish ways, or do we just cover them over with an adult veneer? We'll see in a little bit just how adult the Apostle Paul was in his unconverted state as Saul of Tarsus. But here in our enlightened times, how do so-called adults react to adversity? You know, it's a child's way to stick your fingers in your ears and yell, la, 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 I can't hear you. We have the adult equivalent uh, in many people's reactions to the two most important and recent Supreme Court decisions that came out, what, two weeks ago. In the case of the Second Amendment concealed carry law in New York State, the Supreme Court ruled that New York's effective ban was a violation of the Constitution, and that though the state could ban guns in sensitive areas, otherwise concealed laws, uh, concealed carry was written with, uh, within citizens' rights. They had a right to do it. So what did the New York governor and assembly do? Okay. They uh, legislated that basically 95% of their state was a sensitive area. Okay. New York City, Times Square basically everything but 5% somebody did the calculation, not me all but 5% of the state of New York uh, is considered sensitive area and off limits to guns so now the Supreme Court will get to have a challenge brought by the gun owners of New York and we will get to do this all over again and New York State will be slapped down 3 years in the future, 5 years in the future really really adult New York I just want to point that out That this was an adult way to to uh, deal with it in other words la 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 I can't hear you and in the ruling striking down Roe versus Wade irresponsible voices in social and news media portray the ruling as making abortion illegal in the United States were it, were it that that was the case you know We know it was not the case. The ruling gave the responsibility of abortion back to the several states to decide where the government is more responsible and deferential to the will of the people because they have to be elected in a closer, smaller area and they're supposed to be more responsible to the will of the people. And the fact that it is supposed to be more responsible to the will of the people Uh, Do you think that California, New York, Massachusetts, Washington State, Oregon are going to eliminate abortion? I say no, but uh, that's only because I live among those people. Once again, what do we get with the protesters of this? But la, 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 I can't hear you. With their figurative fingers in their imaginary ears, it's as though... There is no room for an adult discussion of these and many other topics in the United States these days. At a prayer meeting, to get sort of on track of what I'm speaking about today, at prayer meeting this week I I passed out the uh, yearly readings for the Jewish faith, uh, and I took it from a Jewish website so there was no hanky-panky, because I've told you before that the Jews do not read. The portions of Isaiah that talk about the suffering ser- uh, servant, where he's crucified and died and broken, and so I printed out and passed that out. And uh... but on closer reading, it was just not Isaiah 53 that's censored, but it's everything that deals with the Messiah that looks like it might be talking about Jesus. Okay, they don't read anything in their readings, that sounds like a Christian, you'd point to it and say, that's Jesus there. They just cut them out of their yearly readings completely. So instead of confronting the clear truth about Jesus of Nazareth, they stick their fingers in their ears and shout, la, 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 I can't hear you. So here we are today, finishing up the history of Stephen's ministry. And it's going to end a little abruptly. Uh, In my last sermon, Stephen had been uh, politely but forcefully lecturing the Sanhedrin, and the others uh, gathered at his defense about the um, patriarchs and other forefathers' treatment of not just Moses, but all of the prophets of Israel, the way they killed many of them and persecuted the rest. And he had paid a special attention to those proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. Acts 51. Oh, something that he had said caused an out, um, outrage in the crowd. And his immediate reaction is an accusatory one. He says in Acts seven fifty-one through uh, 55, You stiff-necked people they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So it says here the Sanhedrin and the others in attendance here were enraged. And the enraged here, other versions, I don't know what yours say out there, other versions say cut deeply or cut to the quick. The word in Hebrew, actually, the words here translated as enraged, actually meant that uh, they were sawn through and through, okay? Just to let you know, that's exactly what happened to Isaiah, who off- offered all those prophecies about Jesus. He was sawn through and through. He was sawn in two by his grandson. I think that they had familial problems there. They were angry and enraged, yes, but more than that, they were they were devastated, by the calling out of their sin. It, it implies that they knew their sin. And so does what comes next. It says they ground their teeth at Stephen. And I thought about that. I Ground their teeth at Stephen. And I thought, that's, that's sort of weird. Well, almost every other version says they gnashed their teeth at Stephen gnashed their teeth. It's, yes, uh, Robin's doing a good impression here. I should. They gnashed their teeth. And um, the Puritan commentator, Matthew Poole, said it really well. He says, the gnashing of the teeth is the curse of the damned. And points us to Matthew 8.12 where Jesus says, uh, in the instance of the centurion coming to him to heal his uh, servant, he The centurion says in verse 6, chapter 8, says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth, accompanying everlasting torment and damnation. The outer darkness, hell, is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. If only the Sanhedrin had wept in repentance, then there would not have been any gnashing of teeth, either here in this passage. Or in hell itself. That brings us to the bulk of today's uh, passage. I'm going to read it all Acts 70, 755 through 81a. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God uh, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Notice the difference between the reactions of Stephen and the Sanhedrin. The authorities were cut to the quick and gnashing their teeth and stopping their ears. But The one on trial was calm. And how can one be calm at at a time like that? Uh, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and God controlled him, and, and because of his confidence in the one who was able to save him, Stephen could stand calmly and serenely as the tempest raged around him. Verse 55 says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There is no reason for any Christian to fear death. There is no possibility of any of you dying before your time. Nathan rode here on a a motorcycle today and I told him that I had to stop riding motorcycles because somebody was going to kill me in the San Fernando Valley, okay? Okay. Uh, they just were working on it. Well, it wasn't my time to go. I didn't die on the motorcycle. The God who knows when a sparrow falls from the sky has known before the foundations of the earth the time of not only your birth, but the time of your death. And Stephen gazes up to the heavens, and God gives, us, gives him a glimpse Afforded to only a few in Scripture. He was given a glimpse into heaven. Okay? Paul had a vision, and he said, In body or out of body, I do not know. But there are several who were given a glimpse on the earth, into heaven. Stephen sees Jesus, sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Jesus is normally said in Scripture to be sitting at the right hand of God. Upon finishing his work, he sat down. So why is Jesus standing here? And some commentators say he was standing out of concern for Stephen's plight. But to me, that doesn't make sense. Jesus knows what is to be Paul Stephen? In fact, Jesus has ordained it. Jesus knows what Stephen's going through. Others think Jesus is standing to receive, to re- welcome Stephen into his presence, into heaven. And um, I vote with this interpretation how easy death would be if we saw the Savior rising to greet us. And perhaps Jesus does. Scripture shows us it happening here. So I'm not going to say it happens in every case. But Scripture shows this happening. It may be that our moving from life unto life everlasting that Jesus himself stands to greet us. Verse 56 says, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now this is the last straw for the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders. Jesus, Jesus had often compared to him, not compared, referred to himself as um, the Son of Man. They had just a little before murdered Jesus because he claimed to be God. And here Stephen Validates that claim, reporting that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, sharing in God's glory. And to the Sanhedrin, this is the lowest form of blasphemy. I was going to say the highest form of blasphemy, but I don't know if you can say blasphemy it has a highest form. It's the lowest form of blasphemy, and they could stand Stephen's presence no longer. Verse 57 says, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Now, mind you, I, 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 I like the visual here, as you can tell by my opening. It apparently was a common thing for Jews who did, in the presence of blasphemy, to stop their ears so that they could not hear it. It is my experience, however, that most people stop their ears figuratively, if not actually physically, to instead keep from hearing the truth. Scripture here backs me up. It was not blasphemy that caused the Jews to stop their ears, but the truth of the depth of their sin in crucifying the God of glory. And so they rush and fall upon Stephen, and in verse 58a, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. I have seen debates about whether this had been a legal trial or a lynching. It happened very quickly. I, uh, we covered that. The debate was apparently in the morning. They didn't like that. They dragged him before the Sanhedrin. He's going to be dead before nightfall here. Did they gather? Did they do a legal legal trial? Or did they simply kill him, find the nearest tree and string him up, as it were? Being taken outside the city and being stoned was the penalty for a criminal, and apparently taking them outside the city was crucial. I don't know why. Uh, I'm not up to date on Jewish trials, but taking them out the city is what you did with the criminal, and then stone them. Some say the Jews could not execute a sentence of capital punishment. Others say they could for blasphemy against uh, the Jewish religion, that the Romans allowed the Jews to enforce Jewish law. And I'll just point out that in the case of Jesus, accused of even a greater blasphemy against Jewish law than Stephen was here, The high priests brought him before Pilate because they could not execute him. So I will give you that. Did they have to do that as a ruse to uh, evade responsibility for Jesus' death? And we know that they did that. They didn't kill Jesus, the uh, Romans killed Jesus. But we also know that they were guilty of it. I don't think that that's the case. With that in mind, I believe Scripture shows Stephen was lynched, just another in a long line of the Jews killing their prophets. Verse 58b says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And here we have the first mention of Saul, soon to be the Apostle Paul in Scripture. As I pointed out earlier, I believe Saul was the one who took up the challenge to debate Stephen, but he was not named there, so it's just my conjecture. But here he is now. I've always thought that these outer garments in my mind's eye as a child because I've heard, heard this you know, my entire life. I saw Paul at the back. Everybody takes off their coats, drops them back with Paul and then they walk up to stone Stephen. Well, People familiar with this say, no, that's not what happened here. Because many of these people probably only owned one outer garment. As in the case of um, Mark, sometimes that outer garment disappeared. They kept their garments close to them. The garments belonged to those who were about to stone Stephen. They were laid probably at the front. Paul was in the middle of the action, at the stoning. Scripture does not say that Paul stoned Stephen, Uh, but we do know from Scripture that he felt guilt over the death of it later on. The garments were therefore up where the men stoning Stephen were, and Saul was right up front. Verse 59 says, As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, when you hear Stephen call to Jesus, I want you to remember something. You know, today, and Jesus said it about us, you know, you saw and yet believe. blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And when we call to God, there is, at least for me, there is a little di- distance when I call out to God. But Stephen was a disciple of Jesus, a man with responsibilities among that group of believers, uh, called out for a special responsibility to the, uh, uh, to the Greek-speaking women. He knew Jesus. Stephen knew Jesus. Jesus was his friend. And Stephen sees this friend, his Lord Jesus, and calls to him, knowing he will be with that friend in just a moment. And he was unafraid because he knew who was to receive him. His friend. Jesus. You know, we... We should be able to comfort ourselves in our trials that Jesus is our friend also. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion. That communion, though it is with us and with the saints before and after throughout the world, it is first and foremost with Jesus. He has called us as a friend. And as Stephen calls out to Jesus here, Receive my spirit, so we should be able to call out to him also. Verse 60 says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and and falling to his knees, it says, sounds so calm it sounds so peaceful and remember he's being stoned he's driven to his knees with rocks to his head and he says Lord do not hold this sin against them and when he had said this he fell asleep it's very much an echo of Jesus on the cross Stephen prays that the sin would not be held against his killers But how could it not be held against them? How could they possibly escape this sin? How could they not be held responsible by Jesus watching and God for this sin? Well, Stephen's last words were also an act of evangelism, of Christian outreach. They had to repent. They had to become Christians. They had to become friends of Jesus themselves. And then he died. In chapter 8, 1a says, And Saul approved of, of his execution. Spoiler alert. Of Saul, not too much further on here in Acts, Jesus himself will say... I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so here we see Paul as we close this first section of Acts. Usually I'd start off with what I'm about to read, but I'm working a little bit backward today. You know, 82 years ago, the nation of England stood alone against the Nazi Germany juggernaut that overwhelmed Europe. Germany threw its entire Air Force against the English, firebombing cities in its attempt to terrorize the population and to surrender. You may not know that Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England, is probably a better writer than he was a politician. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1953 for a body of work that had started in about 1900. He was considered the greatest English essayist of his day. He was brilliant. You know, after, after, Europe, was, after Europe was conquered, very famously he said, We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength. In the air we shall defend our land, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. That was given in a speech. That's a pretty good speech if you ask me. I haven't heard a speech quite like that in my life. Of the Battle of Britain, the air war that raged over uh, England from July 1940 till May 1941, he said of the defending pilots, of pilots defending Germany against overwhelming odds, he said, Never have so many owed so much to so few, and I'm sure you all have heard that too. Another brilliant line by, by Winston Churchill. And then when the battle had ended, he had this to say. Now, just the Battle of Britain, not World War II. World War II was yet to come. The United States is not even in it yet. But of the Battle of Britain, he said, now, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning the book of Acts is often characterized as chronicling the beginning of the Christian Church, and it does. But as the title of the book says, even more than that, it's about what the apostles did. What we're going to see now is several apostles and their ministries coming up. But but the the church as we end here today, has been established. It has been defended by the apostles. It's come under persecution. The apostles have been persecuted and now here Stephen has been martyred by the Jews. But unlike... Well, this, this is the end of the beginning of the early church. But unlike the quote of Winston Churchill, there is no beginning of the end for the Christian church. And I like thinking about that. This is the end of the beginning. We're going to move beyond. We're going to be spreading out Christianity through the known world now in the rest of this chapter. It's the end of the beginning. But there is no beginning of the end. the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The crucifixion of Jesus, which the high priests and Sanhedrin hoped would be the beginning of the end of what derisively would be called Christianity. You know that Christianity is a derisive term, do you not? The greatest religion the world has ever known took its name from a derisive term for the believers the martyrdom of Stephen was not the beginning of the end. There is no end to Christ's church because each new Christian, each small church, just adds to what is now not the beginning, but the continuing church of Jesus Christ. And this church will continue Until Jesus Christ calls his bride home, there will be no end. It doesn't matter what any of our philosophers today say. It doesn't believe what people who believe in nothing say. The church of Jesus Christ is ongoing forever. It had a beginning, but it has no end. Let's close in prayer.